0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I'm your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I am talking with Dr. Darren Ingalls today. He's the author of a great book. We're gonna drill down into it. Uh, It's called The Lyme Solution, A Five-Part Plan to Fight the Inflammatory Autoimmune Response and Beat Lyme Disease. That was published by Avery uh, in March of this year. Uh, Darren Ingalls is really kind of a doctor's doctor. Um, a lot of us refer to him for some of these challenging uh, cases, such as you know Lyme and 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 sort of its its ability to um, uh, increase one's vulnerability to mold and mycotoxicity, et cetera, and he's just done a lot of really good work in this arena. I was introduced to Darren by Dr. Amy Myers um, and have appreciated getting to know him. Um, he's, he's talked to my journal club on a number, a number of different calls, just kind of updating us on his unique approach. Uh, let me give you a little bit about his background. He's a respected leader in natural medicine. He's with more than 26 years background. Um, He's bored board certified in integrated pediatrics and a fellow of the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. Again, he's just published his book on Lyme disease. We're going to talk about today. It's a comprehensive natural approach to treating Lyme. He specializes in Lyme disease, autism, and chronic immune dysfunction. He uses diet, nutrients, herbs, homeopathy, and immunotherapy to help his patients achieve better health. Uh, Dr. Ingle's lectures all over the country and probably in in other countries as well and we are so glad to be picking your brain today Darren welcome to New Frontiers
1: oh good morning Kara thank you for having me
0: talk to me about your background you know how did you get into uh, focusing on
1: well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, actually, before I was a doctor, I was a microbiologist. I actually was a clinical laboratory scientist, I think the technical name, and I did uh, microbiology and immunology testing at a big teaching hospital in Chicago. So I actually used to do Lyme testing as part of my job. <laughs> so wow. I've got a, a very broad background in laboratory testing. And uh, then about three weeks before I opened my own practice in Connecticut, I got infected with Lyme disease. And uh, I got to experience what most people with Lyme experience, you know, I had a very stereotypical case of Lyme with Mm -hmm. very high fever, headache, joint pain, had a big bullseye rash on the back of my leg, you know, really every symptom you read in medical textbooks. So, I went on you know a standard treatment of doxycycline, and after four days of treatment, I actually felt pretty well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as a new business owner, I was doing everything and working 10, 12 hour days and After about eight months of doing that, I started to relapse and get symptoms again and so I went back on antibiotic therapy and uh, it didn't help, and I changed antibiotics and it didn 't help. And Over the course of the next eight or nine months, I kept changing antibiotic protocols and actually continued to get worse and worse. So, you know, I was fortunate that I had a handful of patients that had seen a doctor in New York City named Dr. Zhang,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. who's a Chinese medical doctor and herbalist. And I went to see him, and he started treating me with Chinese herbal medicines. And after really a handful of weeks... I started to improve significantly. So it was really kind of my uh, wake-up call that uh, I needed to come back to my naturopathic roots and really kind of examine what I was doing in my life and why was this sort of happening. And it was really about, you know, getting better sleep and eating well and going back to herbs. And uh, it took about two years after that point to feel like I really kind of got my life back. Uh, but eventually, you know, I did and started, you know, functioning at a very high level again. So it was really, you know, that personal experience of, you know, trying, you know, various therapies and what worked and what didn't work. And then, you know, I started applying what I did for myself to other Lyme patients and found that they were responding very well. And as I started digging into it a little bit deeper and realizing, you know, that Lyme is just such a, a Terribly complex medical problem and it's far beyond just an infection and you know so looking at all the immunological things that happen with Lyme and uh, you know just started applying those uh, Principles to treatment and I just found that you know people really started getting better faster So that was really kind of the impetus behind writing the book is I just want to be able to have a way of sharing you know my experience with Lyme personally and you know what I've been doing with patients
0: yeah, that's that's so good. I know you've you there are there are nice reports coming out of the work that you're that you're doing, and I've actually referred to you myself. Um, all right, so I want to jump in because I everybody I, I need to mine your brain for your protocol as much as we possibly can in our time together, because I know everybody, mostly clinicians, are listening to this and they're really wanting to know, especially with your personal experience, which is you know a good important story. All right. First but my first question is, as you know, CDC just released their morbidity and mortality weekly report with some pretty depressing statistics on the meteoric rise in tick-borne and mosquito borne infections. I mean, in fact, you know, yesterday, not yesterday, a few days ago, our actually our office has been shut down because we were in the middle of the Connecticut tornadoes, as random as that is. (laughs) We haven't had any power around here. But right before that happened, there were a group of women walking. Our office is surrounded by the Putatuck Forest. We're literally just planted in the woods here. And they were walking on the pavement. And I said, you know, there's an awesome trail back there. It's beautiful. It goes along the river and there's a nice trestle. And they said, yeah, 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 we've walked on that many times, but it's tick season. And so they were marching back and forth on the ugly, hot pavement here. And it, so it's 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 depressing, and and people are avoiding the woods. I mean, I go out in my grass, and then I'm checking myself for ticks, and it's it's anxiety provoking. So, given what's going on, um, just talk to me about what you recommend to patients on prevention.
1: Well, you know, the thing with ticks is that uh, they need to have contact with you to to really, you know, get on your skin and potentially infect you. So, you know, ticks don't jump. Uh, so, you know, it's usually when you're brushing up against, you know, leaves or foliage that, you know, if the tick's sitting there and then you brush up against it, that lands on you and eventually, you know, can make way to your skin. So, you know, the best prevention really, especially if you're going to be hiking out in the woods, of course, I always recommend, you know, if you're hiking on a path that has a path cut out, stay on the path. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go out into the deeper, you know, un- Uh, manicured part of the the trail because you're more likely to come in contact with these ticks so you know staying on the trail is definitely helpful but you know even then especially you know in Connecticut I recommend you know wear long clothing when you're out in the woods i mean it seems kind of counterintuitive because especially when it's summer and it's hot and humid and it's really kind of uncomfortable but you know the that clothing does provide a pretty significant barrier against the tick so you know long pants shoes socks long sleeve shirt and if you're going to be going anywhere that might have some overhanging brush you know even a hat uh and you know another nice thing is that there's some really great natural tick repellents that you can get online or at actually a lot of health food stores and uh, you can spray yourself, spray your clothing before you go out in the woods. That's also gonna be an extra layer of protection. And you know, I, I get this comment a lot from people to say, well gosh, you know, natural stuff, does it really work? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the government's actually studied it, and yes, it does work. And you know, there's a lot of great essential oil formulas uh, relative to using DEET, which we know is terribly toxic. And of course, you never ever wanna apply DEET directly to the skin, which I hear people do all the time. It's very toxic, very dangerous. But, you know, we've got different combinations of, you know, cedar and lemongrass and uh, tea tree oil. Uh, There's just a whole bunch of them, Uh, clove oil that have been shown to be really excellent tick repellent. So, uh, you know, you can pick up one of these products. But it really is about being vigilant. And if you've been outside, and again, particularly if you've been hiking in the woods, you know, when you get home, you know, you want to do a head-to-toe tick check. You know, these ticks are extremely tiny. They often look like little flecks of dirt. And uh, particularly if you're out with your kids, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, you strip them down when you get inside and comb through their hair and look at all of their skin. You know, ticks like the dark, moist areas of the body. So think about, you know, the armpit, the groin, the back of your knees, the hairline behind your ears. Uh, these are the kind of places that people often get bit. So those are the kind of places you want to hone in and look at.
0: Okay. All right. So you're not a, you're no, you're not recommending woods avoidance, but just be smart about it. And you think yes. that the essential oils will will help. That's um, that's that's I'm sure a lot of people are going to appreciate hearing that. Um, okay. So you've gotten a tick bite. You know, then what?
1: So if it's an initial tick bite, you know, this is a case where I think antibiotics are very appropriate. You know, we've got plenty of good research and clinical evidence that when you catch it early, you know, antibiotics have a very good chance of eradicating the disease before it ever gets to the point where it causes chronic problems. So, you know, I think the the biggest problem that most people run into is that they don't know they got bit. And so, you know, the number of people who are able to recognize Lyme disease early is probably much smaller than we think. So for people who, you know, get classic Lyme disease, we know the standard features, uh, you know, I think antibiotics are very appropriate. For the people who, you know, perhaps got bit, you know, months or even years ago, you know, I think the protocol needs to be a little bit different. I think, you know, between what I've observed clinically and what we find in clinical research is antibiotics for people that have what we now kind of coin, you know, chronic or persistent Lyme disease, uh, the CDC calls it post-Lyme syndrome you know there's very little evidence that antibiotics at that point are really going to be of much benefit
0: well before we before we jump in there i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm cutting you off mid thought but i assure you we're going to get over to chronic Lyme what's the protocol for you know initial bite
1: Well, if you follow the CDC's protocol, you know, it's still, you know, they they say 21 days of doxycycline. Uh, Any of us who've been in the Lyme world for more than 10 minutes realize that, you know, three weeks is not nearly adequate. And actually, the CDC recommendation is 10 to 21 days. So there are some doctors who just give you 10 days of doxycycline or amoxicillin, and, you know, that's the end of that. Uh, But, you know, the one thing you need to understand about Lyme is it's an extremely slow-growing organism. And with any treatment, the reason it's longer than standard antibiotic therapy is because of the time in which the organism replicates. You know, consider most bacteria in your body replicate about every 20 minutes. You know, the research online suggests it replicates every one to 16 days. That's extremely slow. And if you consider a drug like doxycycline, that's not bactericidal it's bacteriostatic. So it doesn't actually kill anything. All it does is it keeps the organism from replicating. So it's still dependent on you having a healthy immune response to eradicate the infection on its own. So, you know, if you're going to use doxycycline, you know, I'd say six weeks is probably the minimum. And really, uh, I go until people are symptom free. So uh, if you're going to use amoxicillin, really, it's the same length of time. Um, you just have to really, you know. Keep in mind how people are feeling. You know, this concept that you just treat for a set period of time, which is the CDC recommendation, I mean, just clinically doesn't make any logical sense. So, you know, you really have to continue the treatment until people really start to feel well. And, you know, by and large, I find most people with acute Lyme, you know, by that six-week mark, many of them, if not most of them, you know, do respond and feel better.
0: Okay. And that's sufficient. You don't need to jump into the chronic stuff, or I would imagine in a subset that you do.
1: Well, there's a, you know, we know that there's a subset of uh, Lyme patients that get what are called persister cells with even with the appropriate treatment. And even if you catch it early, they don't respond to therapy and they kind of move into that chronic Lyme phase. So there was a study that came out uh, within the last month. Uh, kind of demonstrating that, you know, even after people had been on 21 days of doxycycline, they still had evidence of Borrelia in their body. So, you know, we know that there is that subset that, uh, for whatever reason, those particular organisms just don't respond to antibiotic therapy.
0: Are you so, you, so you probably prescribe, I'm assuming you'll do six weeks with doxy or amoxicillin, Are you, you know, for somebody who's just experienced a tick bite. Are you going to do that protocol, whether they're symptomatic or not?
1: I do not treat asymptomatic people.
0: Okay. All right. Okay, good. Good. Would no, you
1: give- I think You have to consider that, you know, your immune system has a wisdom to it. And again, there are some people who will get bit. Their immune system does what you want it to do. It gets rid of the infection, and that's the end of that. So, you know, even when we see evidence of Lyme on a piece of paper, you know, barring having clinical symptoms, I would be very hesitant to treat people because the treatment, you know, any treatment, you know, has its own set of risks as well. And, you know, you can disrupt your microbiome and things of that nature with, you know, even herbal therapy. So you know, you have to consider, is the treatment going to be worse than the disease? And so in my world, uh, unless people are are demonstrating signs of Lyme, uh, there may be uh, little benefit to treating them. Now, the argument could be made, well, gosh, you know, if they got this infection, it may manifest many years later. And theoretically, that may be true. But uh, again, you know, my experience has been that, you know, treating people early, uh, often, you know, again, because they've got, we've got nothing to compare it with. We don't have any symptoms that we can monitor as their progress. You know, what length of time do you really need to treat at that point? So I think it creates more, uh, questions than answers. And uh, again, I haven't really seen uh, evidence that you necessarily have to be aggressive for someone who may have had exposure who really has no clinical symptoms.
0: That's great. I think that's a really, really important point. We've got a wildly sophisticated, very powerful immune system. And if we're generally healthy, I think many of us are going to clear exposure. Uh, So I appreciate that.
1: yeah, I kind of feel like if I tested everybody in New England for Lyme, we'd probably find 75 or 80% of people may have evidence on at least a piece of paper that they've had exposure to Lyme. They all don't have Lyme disease. Right. So, you know, what is the difference in, you know, why some person gets it and the other person doesn't? And, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later in our yeah. chat. but you know, yep. I, I, ultimately, it really kind of comes down to the terrain and, you know, what's the state of your body and your immune system prior to that tick bite? Uh, that probably plays a pretty significant role on, you know, who and who does not end up with chronic Lyme.
0: Yeah, right. As your story, as your own end anti- of one demonstrated. Well, are you, are you suggesting to people they'd send the tick off? I think I know the the answer to this, but, you know, getting the tick tested.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, it's not a hundred percent, but you know, certainly if I uh, get a, a a tick sample and we send it off and we see there's evidence of Lyme or co-infection, I would actually then treat if it comes back positive. Only okay. in that, again, even if you've got early exposure, it can take up to a month before you develop symptoms. So, you know, again, if we get a tick result back within a week, uh, my feeling is, you know, let's treat until proven otherwise, and, you know, whether that's with herbal therapy or antibiotics kind of depends on the patient, but uh, I think instituting some kind of treatment early on as a preventive measure is probably wise, uh, particularly when the tick, you know, comes back positive.
0: Got it. Okay, so no symptoms, no tick, you're not going to treat, but if they are still asymptomatic and you've, and the tick comes back positive, then you're going to treat. Okay. Um, Talk to me about the labs. I know we've had pretty lengthy conversations via email, uh, you know, you and and our colleagues on on how the heck to even evaluate. I mean, there's a lot of tests, there's a lot of emerging tests. Um, What are you using? How are you establishing Lyme disease?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important that people understand and then, you know, go to the CDC's website and actually read this. I always point this out and people are always kind of shocked. Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. It always has been. It's never ever been a lab diagnosis. That test that was originally devised, and again, this is speaking as a clinical microbiologist who did this test for many years, this test was developed actually to monitor people who had known Lyme disease. So when they first discovered that initial population of people with Lyme, they drew their blood, they looked to see what antibodies were there, and then they said, okay, well, if you have Lyme, you probably have these antibodies. You know, understand in 40 years of Lyme, we have never, ever changed that criteria of the standard, you know, two-tier system that the CDC recommends. So, you know, I've really migrated away from, you know, the standard two-tier testing. I can tell you from my own experience, when I was in the midst of Lyme, and again, I was a classic Lyme patient, my Lyme screen was negative, completely negative, and my Lyme Western blot lit up like a Christmas tree. So the Lyme screen is a horrible test. It's not sensitive. It misses more than half the people that have Lyme. So if you're following that guideline, stop. It's a waste of time and money for you and your patient. So, you know, I've gone with labs that, you know, do, use different test kits and have different reporting criteria. And again, you know, the CDC's reporting criteria to call a test, you know, positive is very narrow. And again, they don't recognize the difference between antibodies that are Lyme specific and antibodies that aren't Lyme specific. So, what I've done in my uh, clinic that I only use labs that report in a different way. Uh, I primarily use uh, MDL, Medical Diagnostic Lab in New Jersey. Partly because, A, they bill my patient's insurance, which my patients love, and B, is that they actually send you a copy of the strip. Uh, Again, being a microbiologist, I know how to look at it, and I think any doctor can figure out pretty quickly how to read these. But they report each band, and you can see the strength of each band. You know, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a cutoff when they compare Mm -hmm. the patient to the control, And if the patient doesn't have at least 60% of the intensity of each band, they call it negative. Well, you'll get the strip back, and you'll see they're at 58%, 59% for a Lyme-specific band. And they call it negative. I'm like, really? 1% is the difference between you do and do not have Lyme? You know, that 60% threshold is very arbitrary. And I've yet to talk to a single pathologist who can tell me where that 60% came from. And as, again, a former lab person, you know, pretty much every test we ever ran would have a low, medium, and high control. And in this test, it only has a high control. So it doesn't appreciate that there's a gradation of antibody responses. And so the assumption is that if you have Lyme, you make a lot of antibody. So, you know, I think MDL does great testing. iGenex, of course, has been a leader in this world for a long time. They use a different test kit altogether, which is far more sensitive. I think the new player on the block that uh, I'm actually now on the scientific advisory board for is called Global Lyme Diagnostics. And I think what's exciting about this lab is that the doctor that developed this test is actually a vaccinologist. He was actually tasked to create a vaccine for dogs for Lyme disease. And so he found a, 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 a sequence Uh, called OSPA, Outer Service Protein A, which is actually what the old lyme vaccine, which they had for humans, Uh uh, which of course got pulled off the market years ago. That vaccine actually targeted that specific sequence. So, what's interesting is that we know that we have upwards of 100 different strains of Borrelia in North America and about 300 strains worldwide. Yet, you know, the test itself is looking only really for Borrelia burgdorferi. So, if you get exposed to one of these other strains, it's possible that test would be completely negative. Uh, there's also a possibility of cross reactivity. So, the thing with this OSPA is that it's actually common to all Borrelia. So I think it it casts a little bit wider net on looking at all the potential species of Borrelia. And I've run it in parallel with MDL and IGNX and other labs. And even when those tests are negative, sometimes this test comes back positive. So I'll usually run Global Lyme Diagnostics and MDL or IGNX in parallel. And again, we're just trying to get as much information as possible about exposure. And remember, that's what this test is. It's an antibody test. So an antibody test is just telling you you've had exposure. It doesn't tell you you have Lyme disease. So you know, if you had a test where you had these antibodies, particularly if they're Lyme-specific bands, and no clinical symptoms, you could say, okay, well, you've had exposure, but you probably don't have Lyme disease because you don't have any of the symptoms. So I think this is a, a, a thing people need really to be really cognizant of when they're dealing with Lyme is that just because you see it on paper doesn't necessarily mean that you have Lyme. Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. So you always have to take into consideration a patient's clinical symptoms. All that piece of paper is there to do is really validate your suspicion that that's what's going on, demonstrate that they've had exposure. Uh, and you know, you really have to based on you know, the clinical symptoms, you know, the other lab that I think has been really interesting is Armin labs, you know, they're out of Germany and I like their tests because they're not measuring antibodies. They're actually measuring cytokine activity. And of course cytokines, you know, are going to be uh, upregulated when there's some sort of immune activation. So I think it's a better marker about activity. And again, I've had some Armin labs that, you know, come back negative. Again, it doesn't exclude the possibility. Actually, I was just on a a, a, a Lyme chat board where a lot of practitioners were complaining that every single test was coming back positive. Uh, That hasn't been my experience, but again, it's just a tool. And I don't know that you can put stock into any one lab, any one test. Uh, I don't think it's uncommon that often we're doing several tests to try and sort out what we think is going on with Lyme and co-infection. Uh, but again, the Armin Labs is just a little bit different because uh, it's not looking at antibodies. So certainly for someone who might be very early in exposure, I think that's a great test to run because it can then take up to a month for antibodies to be made. So if you're suspicious and it's early, you know, you might want to run that lab first and see if you've got any kind of element of cytokine activity. You know, there's a whole bunch of other labs out there. Um, the ones I'm not really crazy about are a lot of the DNA technology ones. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's some complications in that, uh, it's all about the primer that gets used. And some of these primers, uh, are not necessarily specific to Lyme. Uh, I've, I've come across a couple of labs where every single sample I've ever seen is positive. And again, that always makes me suspicious as a, as a lab tech that, you know, uh, is it is it reproducible? Is it valid? I also get concerned that I know some of these labs aren't necessarily validating their technology and there's really no standard to compare it with. Yes. That also makes me a bit nervous. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, again, if, if you got exposed to Lyme, even though you did have Lyme disease, if there's fragments of that DNA in your body, technically, if that primer's good, it might pick that up. And, again, I think that's the possibility of leading to... Uh, maybe over treatment. So again, you know, keep in mind that, you know, you have to take any lab into consideration with patients, you know, symptoms, but uh, I've I've not really been hot on the DNA technology yet. I'm not sure we're quite at that point where we've perfected it. So I've been a little uh, hesitant to use those labs.
0: Armin cytokine panel, I mean, is it unique enough to implicate Lyme?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, again, you know, the cytokines are actually relatively specific. And uh, I also like it, Armin, because not only can they test for Lyme, but they can test for most of the co-infections too. And it's the same technology. So they call it LE spot. And uh, again, it's a cytokine uh, activation uh, test. So again, for someone who's very early or again, even if you're just concerned about immune activation, uh, you know, you can run Lyme and the whole co-infection panel. And um, again, I think it's just a, a a different way of trying to evaluate, you know, Lyme and these other tick-borne illnesses.
0: Yeah, right. this is this is very very useful. And are these all blood tests? Is these are blood?
1: all, yeah. These are all blood tests. I mean, you know, some of the other labs can run it off other body fluids. I mean, I just think in the reality in clinical practice, I mean, we're not doing spinal taps and
0: yeah, know, right, that, right,
1: right. That more thing, and we're not doing knee taps and more invasive stuff. But yeah, I mean, technically, if you have the capacity to do it uh, you know, that's great. You know, we know that PCR technology is very specific. I mean, if a PCR comes back positive, it's pretty much a hundred percent specific, but the sensitivity is very poor. I used to do a lot of PCR testing and found they pretty much invariably came back negative even when somebody you know, had had Lyme. So uh, again, I don't really do PCR testing anymore just because the yield was very low. Uh, so, but, you know, it is available, and if it does come back positive, it's an absolute, but if it comes back negative, again, it doesn't exclude the possibility.
0: But again, if somebody's not symptomatic, and we're going to turn towards to what that looks like here in a second, it's, it just it's, it's going to impact how you treat, regardless of the presence of PCR. Right. Positivity. Exactly. Positivity. Okay. Okay. So anyway, just to reiterate, folks listening, um, MDL out of New Jersey, Medical Diagnostics Lab, they, they've actually been around for, forever. Um, Igenix and then Global Lyme Diagnostics, you're on the advisory board for them, but um, it it sounds like a really interesting test. Uh, And then Armin Labs over in Germany. Uh, Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about symptoms. I mean, it's a clinical diagnosis, as you pointed out, the CDC states, uh, what are you looking for early? And then, you know, the, the uncovering some of the more unusual symptoms of chronic presentation cover both.
1: Sure. So, you know, acute Lyme disease, you know, you're generally acutely ill. You know, it's the high fever. I mean, when I had Lyme, I had 105 fever. And I don't think I ever had the fever when I was a child like that. Mm -hmm. So I had 105 fever, uh, headache. Usually it's almost migraine like, throbbing, pounding, headache. Uh, You can get swollen lymph nodes. You can get chills, uh, fatigue, of course. Uh, You can get joint pain. You can get low back pain. Uh, You can get neuropathy, particularly in the hands and the feet uh you know it's it 's almost like a really bad flu, yeah body, like. and uh you know that often happens within you know a week to you know up to a month of you know that tick bite. Uh, What happens, though, you know, as it starts progressing, you know, into more chronic Lyme, you'll see potentially a lot of the same symptoms that you might see in acute Lyme, but often the fever goes away. You don't feel quite as acutely ill, but we see more neurological stuff. So people will complain of, you know, brain fog, memory problems, cognitive impairment. People complain about coordination issues, balance issues. You know, I trip frequently. I drop things. I feel clumsy, uh, the neuropathy often gets worse. You'll get it not just in the hands and the feet, but systemically. Um, you can get, of course, that per- persistent debilitating fatigue that often amplifies and gets worse. You know, I, the, one, the, the, the two things that are really telltale to Lyme, of course, the bullseye rash. You know, again, there's nothing else out there that we know of that causes that bullseye rash. Mm-hmm. But people need to <laughs> also be aware that Lyme causes other rashes that are not bullseye rashes. You know, if you go on the internet and look on all the different manifestations of Lyme rashes, they're not all that typical bullseye rash. I had the bullseye rash. I mean, I, I had pictures and I lost them on my phone, but it, it was like a perfect textbook bullseye. But I mean, I've seen other, you know, just sort of general erythematous rashes. The big thing with these rashes, though, is that they're generally not itchy. They're not raised. Uh, again, most people, unless they see it, wouldn't know it was even there. So that's uh, one, because when it's, you know, dermatitis, eczema, usually it's itchy, it's flaky, if it's psoriasis, of course, it's raised. And, you know, most of these other skin lesions have some other characteristic that kind of helps identify it. But these Lyme rashes tend to be flat and red and uh, kind of, you know, really, again, you wouldn't necessarily know it was there unless you saw it. Uh, so when you see that target, you know, bullseye rash, you know, it's Lyme, there's nothing else that causes it. The other symptom that's very unique to Lyme is that migratory joint pain. You know, if it's any kind of other autoimmune problem, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, it tends to be the same joints all the time. And, you know, when it's, you know, one day it's my right shoulder, the next day it's my left knee, the next day it's my right ankle. Again, there's no other condition that we know causes that. And that's pretty much unique to Lyme. We don't even see necessarily that migratory joint pain and co-infection. So when I hear about the migratory, uh, you know, uh, joint pain, that always makes me think of Lyme. And really just anybody who's had chronic both arthritic and neurological issues that have gone on for weeks, months, years, that always raises a red flag for me for Lyme or co-infection because, again, that, that combination of the two, there really aren't a lot of other syndromes out there that cause, you know, both neurological and arthritic problems. So, uh, you know, when you hear about people who've had these, you know, uh, brain issues, coordination issues, and, you know, they constantly feel body pain, Uh, it should at least be at the top of your list to rule it out
0: yeah and what about let me just circle back you mentioned co-infections i know we don't have time to go into detail um but are you using the same suite of different labs to evaluate for co-infection
1: yes absolutely
0: okay and do they all offer co-infection um Uh,
1: yes yes they do
0: okay Okay, um, and are you? I mean, how are you doing? Do you, do you have an intake? Do you have do you have Lyme and co-infection intakes in practice, or are you just moving through what you know, what you've seen over the years, and and understanding? Yeah. Be-
1: well, yeah. We obviously part of our intake is like I think you know most naturopaths. It's very comprehensive, head to toe. But I also created a questionnaire that's in my book that I have people fill out. And uh, you know the questionnaire kind of just takes you through a series of symptoms, and we rate it, and then based on your score, that gives us a pretty good indication about whether you know you might have Lyme or might have had exposure. So, again, in conjunction with laboratory testing, this is just another tool that anybody can use in their practice, uh, and certainly for any practitioner who's interested. I mean, I'm happy to share that that tool with you, but um, it's just a, a very simple, you know, series of about twenty. 25 symptoms and they just score it and then based on that score that can give you a pretty good indication about whether they've got some sort of tick-borne illness.
0: Okay all right great well we can you can send us a pdf and we'll put it on your show notes or you our show notes for your podcast or if you want to send me a link where clinicians can access it on your site that would be that would be True. terrific. Sure. Um, out of curiosity what do you think of the the Horowitz questionnaire? I know it's pretty involved.
1: Well, you know, you know, he's validated his questionnaire and research. And uh, again, you know, what I looked at is that it's very long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, You know, when I created my own questionnaire, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of overlap because, you know, Lyme symptoms overlap. So I really kind of looked at the things that I felt were more uh, specific to Lyme. And so, you know, mine is probably about half of the number of questions as Dr. Horowitz's Uh, again, I think, you know, the concept is the same is that we're just trying to use, you know, uh, different clinical symptoms as a measurement of, you know, what your risk has been or what your exposure may have been. So it's kind of along the same vein it's just, you know, it's just a little shorter.
0: So you talk about Lyme as being an autoimmune disease. I mean, it's obviously got a very clear infection trigger, um, as do co-infections, but it can turn on autoimmunity. Talk about that.
1: Well, when you look in the research, you know, we know that Lyme can actually trigger various autoantibodies that target the brain, target connective tissue, actually, even target your own immune system. So, you know, again, this is not really fringe medicine, it's, it's pretty well validated in the research. And, you know, clinically, you know, when we see people with chronic Lyme, you know, when you first see them walk in the door, you know, your initial thinking is probably going to be, wow, this looks like an autoimmune patient. I mean, they, they sound like mm-hmm. someone who might have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And honestly, I think a lot of these diagnoses are, in at least some cases, tied into Lyme. I mean, if you go to the rheumatologist and say, okay, well, if your patient has, you know, lupus, why? You know, they're going to shrug their shoulders. They don't have a clue. Yeah. So is it possible that, you know, Lyme is a catalyst for some of these autoimmune problems? And I think there's uh, pretty good evidence that for some people, yes. I mean, in my clinic, MS, you know, is Lyme until proven otherwise. Almost every MS patient I've ever treated, when we test them, they test positive for Lyme. And when you treat their Lyme, their MS gets better. You know, my own case, I mean, my Lyme turned into MS. But, you know, if you talk to a radiologist and you look at the MRI, you know, the lesions you see with Lyme are identical to the lesions you see with MS. So, I mean, what is MS? I mean, you know, it's a demyelination of the brain. What causes it? They don't really know. So I think it makes sense that, again, at least in some people, you know, Lyme may be that trigger. And knowing what we know about this ability to make, you know, antibodies particularly to the brain, it makes a lot of sense that 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 mechanism may be triggering, uh, you know, the demyelinating process. So, you know, any of these autoimmune diseases, again, when someone walks in my door, uh, the first thing I look at is some sort of tick-borne infection because they just –
0: what about antibodies? I mean, would you be looking at an antibody um, panel? You know, typical with the typical for the condition they're presenting with, or are there, any, are there any unique antibodies that you might be looking at, or particularly flagged for as being more associated with Lyme?
1: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, the antibodies that we've identified in research, uh, there is no clinical uh, commercial test available for those specific antibodies. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of people with Lyme that might have a low titer ANA, which of course is a very non-specific test. Mm-hmm. So the type of antibodies that are probably being produced, I don't know that we have a commercial test available to measure that, but I mean, I still do look, I mean, I'll use some of the Cyrex testing to look at their, you know, autoimmune profile, particularly the ones that, that have the neurological uh, uh, antibodies, you know, things like myelin and synapsin and so forth. Okay. So, um, I think, you know, there is some value uh, in trying to evaluate, you know, autoimmunity uh, to the brain, particularly when there's a lot of neurological symptoms present. So, uh, but, you know, it's, when you look at the research on the antibodies that Lyme triggers, these are not the same antibodies. So I'm hoping at some point some researcher will develop a test that we can actually start measuring some of these antibodies because, again, we have identified them in the literature, uh, but we just don't have a commercial test available yet.
0: Yeah, and now that you're on uh, a board over at a laboratory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: well you know what it's funny i mentioned that to the owner and he i think he kind of looked at the research he says well that sounds very complicated i'm like well if you know what you guys figure it out and uh, uh i'm hoping you know that the You know, of course, with all these lab tests, you've got to have someone who makes the reagents and the test kit, unless there's a test kit available. You know, most labs themselves don't make the test kits. They buy it from somebody else. So you probably got to get a drug company out there to make the test kit first, and then the lab can start offering it. So fingers crossed, you know, maybe one day we'll evolve to that point where we can really do that kind of testing, because you can imagine how valuable that would be, because not only would we have a way of measuring that autoimmune response, but we'd also have a way of monitoring treatment to see if we're able to downregulate that response.
0: Are, is the Cyrex panel pretty useful for that purpose, even though it's less specific, would you say? I mean, is you know, it fairly, I, yeah, go ahead.
1: It is correlated with what I'm seeing clinically. It so from that, from that standpoint, I see value. And again, I've had patients where, you know, we do their initial testing. We show some evidence of autoimmunity to particular specific brain proteins. And then after however many weeks or months of treatment, we repeat it. And sometimes we'll see these antibody levels go down or even go away. So uh, even though it's nonspecific, I think it's giving us an overall picture about neural inflammation and that disposition towards autoimmunity to neurological tissue. So I think from that standpoint, it's helpful.
0: Good, good. And Dr. Vojdani might dive into it and, 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 and take your idea and look at it. That would be pretty cool if, if they yeah. did over there. All right, listen, one more question on background, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time on treatment. Um, you talk about mycotoxicity mimicking Lyme and, you know, just a vulnerability there in folks who are mycotoxic or Lyme, you know, have Lyme disease and then go on to develop mycotoxicity uh, more readily. Can you just talk about that
1: yeah, you know, when you write down the symptoms of Lyme and write down the symptoms of mycotoxicity, I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of overlap and almost identical. And I've seen a lot of people who, after they've had exposure to Lyme, seem to be more sensitive to mold. And I don't really know what that mechanism is. I haven't read anything that tells me why. I don't know if it's necessarily a disruption in the immune system that disposes towards that. You know, with mold, you know, there's mycotoxicity, but there's also mold allergy. There are two Mm -hmm. different problems related to mold that clinically can cause similar symptoms. You know, Richie Shoemaker, of course, you know, who's uh, been the big mycotoxin guy for a while. um, I will respectfully disagree that mycotoxicity is the bulk of the problem for mold. Only in that, you know, mycotoxicity is usually tied into some element of water damage. So if you had a leaky roof, leaky basement, leaky pipe, that kind of thing. Yet mold allergy is extremely common because mold right. spores are in most of the country. So I find in my practice that, you know, mycotoxicity, certainly for someone who's been exposed to water damage building, can be significant. And again, for any Lyme patient who's had these symptoms, particularly if they haven't responded well to Lyme treatment, uh, I mean, I usually evaluate for mold very early in our process just because it's just so common. Uh, You know, to do a urine mycotoxin test to at least rule it out as a possibility, it's very simple. Um, And actually Great Plains Labs now has a new mycotoxin test, actually isn't that new, I think it's been out now for a couple of years, but uh, we've been using that and find it very useful. Uh, as evaluating, you know, potential exposure to mycotoxicity. Uh, But, you know, part of that is, you know, you may want to go through and do some element of testing for mold spores or mold sensitivity, just because again, that can also cause brain fog and joint pain and fatigue and mood changes. Uh, So it's not all mycotoxicity. Uh, Sometimes it's mold allergy, but You know, doing that mold workup as a whole, I think, is an important part for any Lyme patient, just because, you know, the overlap is extremely common. Most Lyme patients do have mold issues. And if you live in a part of the country where there's a lot of moisture, you know, it's just just around you. So uh, just to expedite your process with patients, you know, trying to kind of deal with both at the same time just makes things go a little faster.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And then for working up for allergic disease, I think you're doing skin testing in your clinic. Um, but I routinely use Immunocap through any standard reference lab. Um, comments on that? Just working up the mold allergy patient?
1: Well, the only thing, I mean, Immunocap's fine. Uh, just, it's an IgE uh, test. Uh, but a lot of mold allergy has nothing to do with IgE. So, again, the only problem you're going to run into is that uh, if your IgE comes back negative, again, it doesn't exclude the possibility of still having mold allergy. And, I, again, I've run it on patients, and it comes back kind of negative, And yet they tell me every time it rains, every time it's humid, every time they go into a damp basement, they get a headache and feel tired. And, you know, we can see that they're having reaction to mold, even though their IgE was negative. So, uh, you know, skin testing tends to be more accurate. Um, and we actually, we'll look at delayed reactions, not just the acute reactions. So we'll measure 24, 48 hours after doing testing for any kind of late delayed reaction.
0: Okay. So you recommend specifically skin testing. Um,
1: and if you don't do it in your clinic, you know, find an environmental medicine doctor that does it. And, you know, there's plenty of us around the country who do it and, you know, you can refer your patient out just to have that part done and just find out if uh, that's part of the problem.
0: And you're doing intradermal, I'm assuming.
1: Uh, we do a combination. We do intradermal, we do skin patch, and uh, we actually even do some esoteric kind of testing. So it's just a combination uh, to try and you know, can cast as wide a net as possible. Okay. But skin okay. patch testing is another great way, and it's very easy for people who don't want to get into doing intradermal testing. Uh, you know, you can, if you've you know, got prescriptive authority, at least as a naturopath, you can get the uh, the extracts from an allergy company. And really, as you put the patches on, they stay on for 72 hours, Uh, They're not very comfortable, but, again, it is an easy way to uh, measure how the skin's reacting, and it's been been shown to be a valid technique for measuring for allergy. And because it's on for seventy two hours, you are going to, to pick up some of those late delayed reactions.
0: Okay, all right. And so you can find a local provider who's doing some of these, you know, doing intradermal um, and possibly patch. If you're not doing it in your office, through the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, uh, and right. we'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk about protocols. Um, you specifically are using a modified Cowden protocol and you're using the Zhang protocol that originally got you better. Talk about these in detail.
1: Sure. Well, uh, the Dr. Zhang protocol, I so said that was my first uh, you know, experience uh, with the different kind of herbal protocols out there. And, uh, you know, what I like about his protocol is that, you know, in Chinese medicine, Chinese herbal formulas are always used in combination. They never use herbs singly like we often do in Western you know herbal medicine. So every formula is put together to be really kind of synergistic. And, of course, I'm not an expert in Chinese medicine. I can't really speak to that level. But from what I do know about Chinese medicine and Chinese herbs is that, you know, every formula kind of has a purpose and the herbs are put together for a very specific reason. So his formulas, you know, contain anywhere from three up to, I think, 12 different herbs in each formula. And what I like about the formula specifically is that they address, I think, the totality of everything Lyme is doing to your body. So it's not about just going after the infection, but it's, you know, helping, you know, uh, reduce inflammation and improve circulation and breaking apart immune complexes and really dealing with everything else that Lyme's doing to your body. So, you know, he's got a lot of different herbs, uh, in his, uh, his company. But again, I've used a handful of them uh, clinically and I find that that's what most people respond well to. So for example, one of the formulas, uh, the lead urban is artemisia. And of course we know about artemisinin and its ability as an antimicrobial. And artemisia not only is it effective against Lyme, but it's very effective against Babesia. In fact, uh, you know, they use artemisia to treat malaria in Southeast Asia. So Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Artemisia is a great herb. And what I like about his herbs is that they are actually more concentrated than pretty much every other company I know of that makes herbal medicines. So uh, they go through a specific process of, you know, really concentrating it to get high potency out of it. Uh, One of his other formulas contains an herb called Hatunia. Uh, we don't really use Hetunia in Western medicine, but it's used a lot in Chinese herbal medicine. Again, it's a very potent antimicrobial, has effects against actually you know, bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, so pretty broad spectrum antimicrobial. He's got another product called Circulation P. It's a mix of different Chinese herbs that really help improve circulation. So it's not a blood thinner. So even for people who are on blood thinners, they can safely use this formula. Uh, It's not preventing platelet aggregation. But uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed in your own clinic, you know, when I draw blood from patients with Lyme, I can even tell before doing the test based on the viscosity of the blood, you know, instead of coming out like water, it comes out like oil. And that, that high viscosity is usually a sign of inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that's a very common thing you'll see in Lyme patients if you draw blood in your office. Uh, So the circulation P is really about, you know, improving circulation. He's got a formula called AI number three. Again, I think there's 10 different herbs in that formula and it's an anti inflammatory formula. The only thing with AI number three, I always have to warn uh, women who are uh, premenopausal is that it can interfere with menstrual cycle. So for women who are still uh, cycling, I do recommend that they go on for three or four months and then take a break. And if they start to experience any kind of change in their menstrual cycle, just just take them off. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other formula I use is called R5081. It's basically a cordyceps formula. So cordyceps can really help with fatigue. Of course, it's a medicinal mushroom. It's a potent immune booster. Uh, So those core five herbs are really kind of part of the protocol. He also has an extract of coptis. Uh, Coptis is a root. Again, we don't really use it in Western medicine, but it's a very potent antimicrobial. And coptis is really one of my go-tos for people with acute Lyme disease, because again, it probably has the broadest antimicrobial effects.
0: So if somebody's so, not going to go with doxy or amoxicillin, you're yeah. going to use coptis as part yeah. of your baseline protocol. And how do you dose that?
1: So pretty much all of these capsules are one capsule three times a day for an adult.
0: Okay. And would you use anything else with that coptis just to kind of pin you down?
1: <laughs> yeah, for a acute line we use the combination. I use the coptis, I use the hatunia, mm-hmm. and often I'll use the circulation P. Okay. And then the other ones we kind of add in again, if someone really has a lot of joint pain, inflammation, we'll add in the AI number 3. He also has a puraria formula that we'll use for people to get like brain fog and other sort of neurocognitive impairment. So, a lot of the other herbs we kind of add in uh, as needed, depending on what the particular symptom picture is. You know, the other formula he has is he has an Allison formula, you know, a garlic extract. And he originally put me on that when I had Lyme. And, you know, Allison's a very potent antimicrobial, but, you know, it's all excreted through your lungs and skin. So, you know, I smelled like a pizzeria every day, and I just couldn't stand to be next to myself after about two weeks of being on it. So I personally really don't use the Allison much, but if people can tolerate it, it does work really well against Lyme. It's just you have to warn people they're going to, you know, smell like a pizzeria for a bit.
0: (laughs) And now you have to go directly to his site to be able to access his products. And I think there's a few educational hoops one needs to jump through. Um, Um,
1: Yeah, if you're a practitioner and you want to uh, set up an account with him, uh, it's just HEPAhealth.com. And if you just contact the company directly, they're actually out here in Irvine, California. They'll set up a professional account with you.
0: Okay. All right. Perfect. All right. Let's talk about the the Cowden protoc- protocol too.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Cowden, uh, he was a cardiologist in uh, Dallas. Uh, I believe he's retired now, or at least semi-retired. And, uh, you know, he had kind of gotten to the Lyme world by accident. I think he was treating his nephew who had Lyme and he's a cardiologist. So uh, basically his protocol uh, involves using herbs. Almost all these herbs come from South America in the Amazon and they've been used by indigenous peoples forever. And his protocol, if you follow it to the T, is, I think, a five or six month protocol where every month you keep changing the different herbs. And the concept is to basically try and confuse the organism, never let it get to a point where it gets used to the same thing. Um, What I found, though, is that it's very complicated for patients, gets to be kind of expensive, and a little bit hard to follow. So... Dr. Eva Sappy, who's a researcher at the University of New Haven, who got Lyme herself, she started researching some of these herbs and found they actually work better than doxycycline, at least in vitro. So I've really kind of stuck to what I call a modified Cowden, where I really only use four of his tinctures uh, consistently. Sometimes we'll add in one here or there, but... Uh, there's a combination of cemento, which is a cat's claw extract, and again, mm-hmm. cat's claw is a very potent antimicrobial, also very potent anti-inflammatory. Uh, there's one called banderol, and the other one's cumanda. So banderol and cumanda both come from the bark of a tree that grows down in the Amazon. And again, they're both potent antimicrobials, anti-inflammatory, but banderol and cumanda also have a little bit of analgesic effect, so it's also great for people that are experiencing pain. And the fourth tincture is Berber. Berber is a bush that grows down there. And it's really about detox. Berber itself doesn't do anything against Lyme. But Berber is a great way of also helping mitigate some of these Herxheimer reactions that people experience when they're going through any Lyme treatment. And, you know, Berber is one that I have people take routinely. But if they start to get that die-off reaction, you know, they can take it every, you know, 30 to 60 minutes as needed uh, if they feel that, that Herxing coming on. And in many cases, it really kind of blunts it. So... Uh, the Berber's really just there for for detox
0: perfect, and so these are these are the two workhorse protocols that you're using in addition to some of the immunotherapy that you talked about earlier. Is that yeah. correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, these are the two protocols I've used the most. And the reason I like them is that A, clinically they work well for a lot of people and B, you know, these Hertz reactions are less common on these protocols than they are with some of the other herbal protocols out there. You know, there's a lot of great herbs out there and I've got nothing bad to say about any of them. I mean, they're just different. You know, Byron White's got some herbs and Susan McCamish with Beyond Balance have some great herbs. You know, Stephen Buhner has his whole protocol. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what the herbs are doing, you know, mechanistically, they're kind of the same. I mean, you know, they're still antimicrobial, they're anti-inflammatory. It's just that uh, I found with some of these other herbal protocols, you know, herxing is more common. People usually feel pretty bad when they're on those protocols. And, you know, having gone through Lyme treatment myself, I'd like to get people feeling better without necessarily having to feel a lot worse. So I don't think it's necessarily a case where you have to get a herx reaction. I know some practitioners feel like if you're not hurting, you're not really doing anything. And I again, I disagree. I never, ever hurt any protocol I was ever on, even when I was on antibiotics. So I don't think it's true at all that you have to hurt to get a clinical response. But again, if I can get people feeling better without necessarily making them worse, you know, that would be my preference.
0: So this has been such a great conversation i'm going to i'm, I'm going to ping you with some extremely important questions here that we're now that we're at the end but um, we have to talk about diet you're using an alkalinizing protocol with your patients and you think that's best. So we, we need to talk about that. And then we have to talk about the all important lifestyle factors. I mean fundamental to your own healing journey was a pretty radical about face in how yeah. you approached life. And I get that as essential. Um, so so let's let's just address that. The the diet you're prescribing for your patients and the really key well and actually you also threw in gut. You know, yeah. I just want to say sometimes we we mention these as you know, at the end, kind of throw them in. And I'm guilty of doing that right now. But the fact is, they're absolutely foundational and fundamental to wellness, like healing the gut, getting people on a clean diet, and investigating their lifestyle habits and, and switching those around as needed. So go ahead, Darren, talk to, talk to me about what you're doing there.
1: Well, you know, the gut accounts for up to 80% of your immune function. So if your gut's not functioning well, then obviously your immune system is not going to function well. And of course, with all the massive amount of research coming out on how important the microbiome is for just about pretty much everything, you know, it's not just about your immune system. It's about your mood and your weight and everything yeah. else. So, yeah. you know, the more we disrupt that, the harder it is to to heal and get well. So... You know, I think, you know, most people listening are probably pretty savvy on, you know, various ways of, you know, healing the gut, treating leaky gut and so forth. But from a diet perspective, you know, after having tried, you know, various diets, you know, I know right now keto is kind of, you know, the, the, the popular kid, but, you know, I, what I found is that, you know, with Lyme patients, because there's so many issues of, you know, fatigue and, you know, just trying to eat well is extremely difficult. And so I was, you know, trying to find something that, of course, A, clinically helped people, but B, was really sustainable. I think when we say diet, we always think about something that's a short-term thing to accomplish a specific goal. And what this is really designed to be is something that people, it becomes a lifestyle change. It becomes just a normal way that they eat. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff written. You know, long before I ever went into naturopathic medicine about alkaline diet. And what was surprising when I dug into the research, there's actually hardly any research out there at all on an alkaline diet, which I was shocked. I think I came across three studies. I mean, it wasn't very much. Now, granted, in those three studies, they're all very positive. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me chemically because physiologically, when you look at how cells function, they really function best in in an alkaline pH, And with the exception of, you know, the stomach, the bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which are very acidic to protect against outside invaders, the rest of your body is actually very alkaline, you know. So I think, you know, when you look at a paleo diet, uh, the big difference between an alkaline diet and paleo is that I think the consumption of animal protein in paleo tends to be a lot higher than it should be. And I think if we go back to our true hunter-gatherer days, you know, we were mostly vegetarian, and you know, we didn't kill every day. We killed when we could, so we ate animal protein, but it really wasn't the bulk of our diet. So what an alkaline diet really is about, it's about mostly plant-based diet, and we try and limit, limit animal protein to less than 20% of your dietary intake for the week, And then there's certain foods we say, look, these are very acid-forming in the body. Let's just eliminate them completely. So that's dairy products. It's junk food. It's coffee. It's black tea. It's honey. You know, some of these foods which we really like actually are very acid-forming in the body. So at least initially I advise patients, I mean, look, you know, let's toe the line. Let's be as diligent as we can. Now, I mean, I know for myself, you know, I used to love coffee. And I would take a sip of coffee and my neuropathy would flare up within minutes. So, you know, even a little bit for some people can be too much. Now, I'm at a point now, having been off coffee for, you know, three plus years, uh, I can have some every now and then, and I feel fine. It doesn't bother me anymore. So it's not like, you know, people have to be that rigid their whole life, but at least initially, um, it's a good idea to kind of, you know, follow the process. And so I've got an outline in my book uh, of uh, you know, what that looks like more specifically, if people are interested. And actually, I uh, work with a nutritionist who actually created a whole month uh, meal plan for people who want to follow an alkaline diet. So it's called prepdish.com. And her name's is Allison Schaff. She's a very talented nutritionist, and she put together a bunch of great recipes. So it's a great resource uh, for people who want to recommend this kind of diet uh, as a way of sort of, you know, helping initiate, you know, what should I be eating, how to eat, And uh, again, what I find is that it's a diet that people can follow. They don't really feel deprived. They can still eat their steak. They can still eat all the things they love pretty much. And, you know, dairy, fortunately, there's a lot of easy dairy substitutes. You know, the one I get a push back on all the time is coffee. (laughs) I think most patients are so tired or so fatigued. No coffee is what gives them that adrenal kick. And so, you know, we try and transition them over to green tea and Other herbal teas and things of that nature. So, you know, it's you know, diet's always hard, and when when you feel tired and you know you don't feel well, it can be challenging. But I just see uh, so many people clinically feel a lot better when they start eating healthier, eating this way. Uh, But again, it's something they can really sustain their whole life.
0: And just say say something about the lifestyle piece.
1: Well, you know, it's the one part I think we as practitioners probably forget about perhaps the most. I think we get so focused on the physical aspect of Lyme, we kind of forget about all this other stuff Mm -hmm. that's really important to feeling well and healing. And, you know, sleep is really, I think, probably one of the biggest problems. I see so many Lyme patients that, you know, used to sleep well and after Lyme, now they don't sleep well at all. And it's difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep and they wake in the night. And, uh, you know, you need that deep restorative sleep to heal your brain. You know, that's when you're, Neurons repair themselves, so all that that tissue repair happens in our deep sleep. So the more we miss of it, the harder it is for the body to heal. And so, how are you?
0: How are you supporting people achieving that deeper sleep?
1: So it's a combination of you know uh, being mindful of you know getting off the electronics before bedtime. Again, we've got good research now how you know iPads and iPhones are goofing up your sleep cycle. So people need to, you know, get off the electronics. I mean, I have people turn their Wi-Fi off at night. I think some people become very sensitive to uh, electromagnetic radiation. Uh, But there's also a lot of nutritional things we can do to help facilitate better sleep. You know, people need to understand that sleep is a pattern, and you've got to train your body to that pattern. So I advise people, you know, go to bed at the same time every night, whether it's the weekend or not. You know, try and stay on the same routine. And if you've had disrupted sleep for long periods of time, you know, it can take a while before your body kind of resets itself. But, you know, we can use nutrients like, you know, 5-HTP and melatonin and glycine. And uh, I mean, I use a lot of CBD oil now. I find that very beneficial for people and helping them get deeper sleep. So we got a lot of really great nutritional things in our uh, repertory to uh, help uh, people achieve deeper, better sleep.
0: Okay, good. What CBD oil are you using?
1: Uh, I use the one from Canavest. I like Canavest. They have basically an organic farm in Holland where they grow their plants, and uh, a lot of the research that's done on CBD oil is their product. So I like the fact that the research has been done using their specific product, and you know they make a liquid and capsule. Um, so, uh, I like the fact too, that every batch is pretty much the same, you know, everyone and their brother now has a CBD product. So, mm-hmm. uh, depending on who you get it from, a lot of these companies, they kind of just crush up the whole, you know, either hemp plant or a cannabis plant, uh, and they don't really, uh, standardize it so that every batch is a different dose with, uh, cannabis, I mean, every batch, they treat it like a drug, every batch, you know, you're just delivering the same amount of CBD. So, uh, I think there's just more consistency from batch to batch.
0: Well, Dr. Ingalls, you know, we've gone kind of way over time here, but this has just been a great, great, great conversation. And I could continue to pick your brain on it, but we'll just have to circle back and do a part two at some point. You've just been... uh, such a really a huge wealth of resources and i know people have been taking a lot of notes and folks we will gather as many of the pearls from his podcast and print them in the show notes for easy access we'll try to link to some of the companies he's mentioned and you know just corral um, all of these pearls together for you all right darren you know i'm so glad you've released this book it's useful it's nicely written um you know, you've got, you've got superscripts in there. It's, it's, it's well referenced and you know, you've just done a great job in this field. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you, Kara.
0: And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.